Hello everyone, welcome to the final seasonal Squiggly Film Club. Hurrah! I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Laura Beth Cowley and Steve Henderson. Hello, Laura, Steve. Hello. Hello. And special guest joining us once again is Mr. Joseph Wallace. Hello, Joseph. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas indeed, and what a what a merry podcast this is going to be. We've saved uh, inarguably the best of the four films for last. It's the nightmare before Christmas. The film I think literally everyone likes. Or they're a bit stupid. Yes. In my humble estimation. <laughs> Shall we just go ahead and press play on this one and we uh, we can all uh, gush over it as it begins? Yes. Let's get gushing. Super. Okay. And in three, two, two one. one. Play. Oh, we still have the touchstone version, do we? Yeah. Yes, we- the, the Disney ignominy opening. <laughs> <laughs> We're ashamed. <laughs> That's all. That's a major part of this film's story, isn't it? It was touch. It was released through Touchstone Pictures because Disney were afraid that kids would be scared, so they released it through the the uh, arm of the theatrical division that they created, especially to release a movie about prostitutes. Hadn't they already like released the Black Cauldron, which I would argue is far scarier than the Nightmare Before Christmas? Yeah, I think that was scary in terms of production values. Um, that's where you get with the. Uh, the Black Cauldron. I love this. I love this bit. Um, well, I love the whole film, but this um, world building that you get at the very beginning—it's really important. This because mm. um, it's it's the concept, and it's kind of it's it's told through a poem. Uh, the whole like kind of perhaps it's a place you've seen in your dreams. Uh, it really kind of it sets up this universe beautifully, and so like um, with quite a lot of economy as well, which obviously it's a. 23 million pound movie but uh, in terms of adding that bit at the very beginning it it kind of really sets the story nicely and then here we go with this amazing song which we can't hear unless you've synced up yeah, the podcast it's wrong to watch this in silence <laughs> it is it is but this is halloween i love it absolutely love it it is a great it has this kind of like yeah storybook kind of quality doesn't it i suppose to the to the narrative that, like you're saying, Steve, setting up the world of this idea of yeah, different seasonal seasonal worlds, and I think it was it was almost like envisaged a bit like a, a sort of children's picture book when he was writing it, mm. and you really sort of yeah get that in the open. It sort of yeah plants the seed for there's 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 a sort of magical element to this these different locations with different characters for each holiday season. Mm. This this film we've not got the subtitles. I usually find a subtitle track and send it on, um, or we usually put the subtitles on. But um, I think it's safe to say that I know exactly what words are coming out of every single character's mouth here. This is yeah. there's no problem here amongst us, is there? No. There were certain films I think from like when you were a kid that you drink in so much that you can just recite them. Yeah. And um, and this was one of the. This was a film that from the day I got it, I watched every day for, I think nearly a month, which is a sort of unheard of thing now. And I actually, it wasn't something I did with like every film I liked. It was something really immediately. And it was this musical number initially. I've never been so immediately bowled over by a film. Like the rest of the film can suck. Like this film is worth the, this uh, uh, film is worth the price of admission based on the opening song alone. Unfortunately, the rest of the film is also quite tremendous. But, um, but yeah, like I would, you know, 
if you ever needed to actually sort of, if you wanted to watch it and then didn't actually have the VHS to hand, I could just play the film verbatim in my head uh, <laughs> without any kind of poetic license or liberties. I would just, you know, it was so tattooed on my brain. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a similar one for me as well, that it's so ingrained in my some sort of, yeah, sense of childhood, probably along with Wallace and Gromit and those kind of films that I think it took me a long time to, as an adult, come back to it and appreciate, you know, the artistic merit because you just know it so well from childhood and this this kind of, yeah, uh, sort of just the images and the songs and the music and this sense of the story is so ingrained. So three minutes in and we've already seen a man surrounded by zombies and werewolves on fire diving into a, a puddle of slime. I can't see why Disney would have been upset to to, to release this. <laughs> and there was a gag that was cut, I think, right? There's like a, a kind of a, a few cut scenes and one, one shot was, I think, the vampires on a frozen lake and they're playing sort of hockey with Tim Burton's severed head. And that was, that was where Disney drew the line. <laughs> You can pick anyone else, but not Tim Burton. What are they? What are they playing it with in, in the end? Is it just a pumpkin? I think so. Yeah. Evidently, the tattoo has faded yeah. on <laughs> my brain. Um, but I, I know the scene you mean. But um, yeah, and they immediately like. I think they just crop in really close, so you can't see what there is that they're hitting back and forth. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the first non opening number character i think we've seen as uh, dr finkelstein mm. who um again i just sort of immediately fell in love with there was something so kind of grotesque about the concept of that character i guess like why is there a kind of duck bill kind of coming out of his face <laughs> and what even is he what is his relationship with you know the the rag doll um it all seemed a little bit like they had escaped, I think, from a much scarier film. And um, I don't know they were kind of, you were sort of seeing them on their, um, on their day off, which I guess is sort of the, the premise of Halloween Town. Is it kind of, okay, they've done the sort of, you know, big event for the year and now they're just kind of relaxing for a bit. Um, it's, it's definitely one of those films where you feel, you, you know, you, it's a window into a world that has existed long before and will carry on existing long after there's such a kind of depth and richness to it and sort of suggestions of past relationships and you know all these kind of uh people in a community it really yeah it just has a a huge amount of sort of scale to it as soon as you get in there you're picking up on all these details i think i actually misread sally initially like the first couple times i saw it i didn't actually get that she was meant to be a doll i thought she was meant to be a corpse um and i think i, mean, I, I think that might is, come from beetlejuice like, i guess she is really kind of a corpse because isn't she meant to be kind of like a lady frankenstein yeah the fact I that she's stitched it. together is not that she's made of cloth because there's that whole sequence later on where the doctor's making like a new lady out of like human parts, yeah, yeah. or using human skulls. I don't but, like stuffing her with like fluff leaves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean that's the thing. Is it's ambiguous. hard to kind of like. Put, yeah, you can't really put you, because it, at the end of the day, it is a doll. She <laughs> like, is sometimes referred to as like a rag doll, but I think that's more just like hmm. her style. And maybe she's sure. referred to in the kind of the Disney literature as a rag doll because rather than like rotting, rotting corpse. Frankenstein corpse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I think if you the obvious go to then is like Corpse Bride, where there's no ambiguity. Mm. But even if it wasn't called Corpse mm. Bride, you would look at photos of that puppet, and there wouldn't be a thing of like, is it a doll? Is it a corpse? Yeah, is it a you puppet? Can see the skeleton. Yeah. So I think that was it. Is that it seemed like once you kind of heard the word ragdoll, I think oh, okay. he's like some sort of Ed Gin type skinned creature. <laughs> well, I, I'm let's go with that too. That hair is just a skin flap. I see it now. It's weird, isn't she it, when you sort of bounds up that. to the hill and hides behind. It's just a leathery flap. Yeah, just hide. And if any, if anyone's watching along with us at the moment, we're in one of the, probably the most iconic sort of scenes from the film, visually at least. And this image of Jack sort of silhouetted against the moon, sun, moon, mm. I guess, um, is sort of yeah became like one of the main promotional images and and also sort of sums up this sort of bizarre aesthetic of the film where you have this hill with a sort of Tim Burton swirl in it that moves on its own is kind of automated on its own accord and that I, I, there's something about the production design which is super interesting and they sort of took Tim Burton's line drawings and took that sort of etched cross-hatched look of the of his pen work into the sets and kind of spread plaster over everything and then dragged combs through it. And it gives this really interesting kind of sculptural quality, like this shot here with the trees, little spindly trees on the hills. There's a lot of theatrical kind of layering and miniatures going on, which are just really striking. And again, had not really been done before. There was this, uh, there's a documentary that's out um, at the moment on, in, on Netflix. Um, I'll not ruin it for people. You can ruin it by watching the documentary. It's awful. Uh, it's it's called the the movies that made us, and they've yeah, got the a holiday movies that made holiday us. movies that made us, and they've got a um, a session a, 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 an episode on on Nightmare Before Christmas, and they talk about the fact that there's no two angles uh, that are that, that match, or you know, there's nothing parallel in the film. One of the maybe two or three facts that I've gleaned from that forty minute documentary, and the rest is just. <laughs> It's just awful. Just editing. It's a barrage of of quick edits. It's it's. it's I've never seen. Let's just yeah. call a space. I've never seen more objectively incompetent filmmaking in a documentary. <laughs> it's uh, you know how like people gave that uh, Queen film shit for being over edited. <laughs> These documentary. I'm assuming it, the whole series is like this. The the overuse of jump cuts and like using quotes from interviewees to fill in. So it's like Mad Libs. It's it's infuriating to watch. Um, you kind of have to like see it to believe it because like it's hard to do an impersonation of it because you'd exhaust yourself. But it, well, it's, it's the fact that like if they ever use someone's name, they have to get it said by someone yes. who was in the in the production. You're like, just say Tim. Yeah, yeah. But the, you the have thing is the just... right to say a name, you weirdos. <laughs> There's this poor guy at the at the very beginning. Um, we we've. we've you know, a couple of years ago, we went on that uh, uh, British animation thing. What they do is they get you in a room, they sit you down for three hours, and then they use approximately 10 seconds of your <laughs> three hours of recording. Um, and they will use the 10 seconds of, that you just ad-libbed and you, you didn't spend ages researching and, and putting any kind of meticulous efforts in. And so with that in mind, I, I mean, we were lucky at the documentary that we were in, but I'm really, really uh, upset for this contributor a, a person called Ian Nathan who's a uh, a writer writes on film obviously and 
Ian sets up the fact that, and he, Ian says, oh, Tim Burton was something of an oddball loner. And then he repeats it again. And you could tell that the director went, no, just say oddball, say oddball loner again. And, and no, no, just, just one more take of what was Tim Burton? And what they've done is they've edited that together. So the narrator's going, wow, give him a break. Whoa, stop having a go at Tim Burton. And, and then every time... Lay Tim, off, you <laughs> yeah. And that's it. They don't let him speak about anything else. They just He's just the guy that they'll now, for the rest of the episode, take the mickey out for calling Tim Burton an oddball loner an oddball loner. So. I think I, I think I said this when we were talking about this off mic, but like what it really felt like was the um, the Simpsons where Homer tries to vindicate <laughs> himself for sexual harassment, and they just edit the shit out of the interview, and you can see the clock in the background like changing the time like every half second. <laughs> sweet uh, can, sweet sweet, sweet can, can. <laughs> Mister Simpson, no. <laughs> Sorry, that was a that was a tangent. It was. <laughs> <laughs> I that would load yeah, it up. I mean, it's, you know, it's worth mentioning that given you know the proximity to this recording that that um, that documentary came out, and it, you know there was interest, there was good stuff in it. I thought in terms of they didn't remove certain people altogether. Mm. I think they did a good job at demystifying the the idea of a Tim Burton production in yeah. a way that I don't think anyone outside of the industry has actually done. Well, I think a lot of people just don't really know. Mm. And, you know, because it's not the kind of thing that everyone technically looks into, mm. um, even if they quite like a film. And I think I was probably, it probably took me a few years before I clocked that Tim Burton wasn't the director. Yeah. Because, I, but I didn't really know what the director was. I was like probably nine or ten when this came out, so I didn't really care what the role was as such. But you t- you could tell there were aesthetic links to uh, <clears throat> other films of his I liked. Um, but I wasn't like automatically... I didn't love everything Tim Burton did automatically. I liked a few of the films, but um, this certainly... I think there's... You know, there wasn't really a precedent at that point for... Uh, you know, stop motion feature film production, that sort of infrastructure that we have now in Leica and Arbman, these other companies where you have a sort of pipeline for creating stop motion features. They were, like they say in the documentary, it was a kind of ragtag bunch. Henry Selick had all his collaborators in the San Francisco Bay Area that they kind of brought together and they assembled this kind of team to take on a feature. One thing that annoyed me about the documentary is they they said, this is the first stop motion animated feature film, (laughs) which is you know, not right in that yeah. we know Lottie Reiniger did that with Prince Ahmed. Uh, this is probably like the first, yeah, stop motion uh, Hollywood, you know, commercial feature. Outside, um, in, in America, that's what counts. That's all, yeah. <laughs> they only think about American culture. So there's a, there's definitely a lot of firsts going on in terms of the scale of production, in terms of sort of, yeah, having people go from... Uh, this is, you know, the big sort of days of MTV and uh, uh, that sort of, yeah, music videos, commercials, that sort of stuff, and then scaling it up to a, a big feature film. The uh, this is this must be one of the of many sort of peaks of the film. This particular song going on now. What's this? Yeah, this is the second most iconic yeah. film in this, and probably actually more iconic than the first one, just by the fact that it's used on anything. To do with Christmas. Well, it's on anything to do with Tim Burton. When we watched uh, Corpse Bride, when we watched the trailer for Corpse Bride, (laughs) they had what's this? this was the trailer, and it was like, 
This isn't even the film. <laughs> Are you oh, just hearing a bunch this? of it's trailers that were a bit film. gothic? And also, the film isn't Christmas even, so why? Why? And before that, it was Beetlejuice. You heard the theme to Beetlejuice yeah. in lots of trailers. Yeah. And Pee Wee. It's all Danny Elfman songs. They must have some like deal with. <laughs> we'll just use whatever. Just whatever the film is not actually having in the soundtrack. We'll use that. So one of my, Anything my, that's slightly dark and quirky, yeah. it'll have Danny Elfman in it. One of my fond uh, musical memories, and I actually <laughs> did a write-up on Squiggly about it, was about seven, I think, years ago, Danny Elfman toured uh, the UK and several other countries, specifically doing Tim Burton film music. And so it wasn't him playing the songs. It was, you know, full orchestra, which was great. But he came on to do singing parts for certain songs, and he did a few from Nightmare, uh, including this one. And um, he had to to give it a couple of tries because he kept missing his cue. It's a tricky... song to kind of like lead in because the vocals start in between the intro ending and the song beginning properly he's like you know a half a beat before so he kept missing that but eventually got it and that was a wonderful he only wrote the song (laughs) um and i really felt like i don't know there's certain like you go and see like a band that has done like a, a really really popular single or something and there's something quite like exciting and, and affirming about that seeing them do it and uh there was the first instance i think of a musician who had written for a film where i kind of got that you know um and then they would do these you know long um orchestral montage uh, sequences as well that were really lovely and um and it wasn't just this film it was you know like i said lots of tim burton films but the nightmare before christmas section was quite chunky because i think you know he figured there were quite a lot of people in the audience for that but uh that was an interesting thing also in that documentary um that he was actually initially going to do the speaking as well yeah for jack which i hadn't i thought it was something they'd gotten wrong and then uh i guess it just turned out he just wasn't very good at it so um they brought someone else in to do that but that was a kind of common See, thing, I think, in Disney films. The the singing voice and the speaking voice were quite often different. But, you know, kids are stupid, so we don't notice. That's a brilliant shot with the brain. Hmm. So I'm, I'm looking at this like the materials and things. There's a bit. There's a moment earlier on during What's This where, where Jack kind of sunk into the snow. I mean, how the heck would that have been done, Joseph? I mean, this is most of this is in camera. This is 1992, 93 when it's being made. Mm. Well, well, even maybe even slightly in 1991. I don't know. It took a while to film, didn't it? But um, how the heck would this have been done? That's funny. I was just thinking the same thing when we were, when we were watching it. I mean, there is there's sort of some interesting early 90s visual effects going on and that they're using sort of bits of 2D and like we were saying in the Jonathan Giant Peach podcast, you know, Henry Selick was kind of known for this mixed media experimentation. So there's elements of that in this. There's not, you know, CGI is what we would kind of know it as now in here, but there are there are elements of the kind of, you know, the ghosts are done in 2D and then sort of composited in. There's I think there's 2D fire in there at some point as well. Mm. Um I mean, material-wise, I think there's there's a lot of um, 
you know, sort of foam latex and, and that kind of stuff going on. Maybe bits of silicon in there, lots of plaster and quite sort of rough materials. The, the snow, I'm imagining, would have been done with maybe kind of polystyrene or something like that and replacements for him to kind of sink into it. But okay. um, yeah, there's there's a great book, actually, which I pulled out and then didn't have time to go through because I was too busy today. But this um, is called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, the film, the art, the vision by Frank Thompson, which is a really lovely kind of behind the scenes book, which is probably available it's online. It's also available because Laura's somewhere. got a copy there as well. <laughs> it's available to um, rent from Laura. <laughs> <laughs> no, as if she'd let you have it. I know. <laughs> but that's got that book's got some brilliant, you know, sort of in-depth uh looks at the sort of the process and the materials they used and and some of the, you know, lots of photos of behind the scenes. And I suppose in a similar way to what we were saying before with the production, they were they were trying things out for the first time because they were making puppets that not only had to last you know, a sort of five-day shoot for a music video, but they had to last months and months, you know, however, I mean, a year or so probably of the of the feature shoot. So, oh, there's Large Marge as well. That's a little um, ref. <laughs> was it you, Ben, who'd shared Large Marge recently on Twitter? Yeah, yeah that, was, um, that was a guy we were talking about in the last episode who did uh, stop motion for, like, The Simpsons. Um, and he had, and one of his earlier gigs was uh, working with Tim Button. Uh, for large margin, um, he talked a bit about that in the uh, the interview. He's uh, Stephen Chiodo, but uh, uh, that was a nice little moment uh, where I could kind of you know be like, "Hey, buddy, <laughs> thanks for you know making little six year old Ben shit his pants." <laughs> 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 he, I think he took uh, a lot of glee in knowing that that was uh, such a memorable moment from that film. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting the sort of mixed clever- media stuff. Uh, and uh, as you were describing that, there was a great shot where they just went full Thunderbirds and it's just like the live action of the soup going through the spoon. Yeah. Because, fuck it, that's too hard. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in a pitch. I remember catching that in the cinemas as a kid, noticing there was a massive difference. I don't, I'm, you know, we've, I was weird as a kid, I might have mentioned. Um, but uh, as a kid... You can, you can tell from the quality of movement. There were actually yeah. things that I thought were live action because the stop motion was so good in certain shots mm. and what it was one of those shots in that scene of Finkelstein one of the close-ups of his head I think it's when he sort of like recoils and goes you want me to starve there was something about the quality of that movement where I'm like is he actually a puppet mm. like a, a hand mm-hmm. puppet in that shot and then later on there's a bit where Oogie Boogie is dancing that I was certain, and again, this was VHS quality, so that kind of blurs the edges a lot, but I was certain that at one point they, they had just gotten a guy in a suit. Um, <laughs> and there were, I mean, there's qualities of, um, if it ever gets released, Chuck Steele that are like that, where it looks like people in costumes, but that, I think, is owed to a lot of post-production artificial motion blurring. Hmm. That, right. that does make things look like kind of aerial live action. And I think maybe there had been something to do with the pan and scan or something on the VHS that created a similar um, effect. But the, the 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 actual studied movement of the characters throughout, like you can tell when it is, you know, I mean, it's ninety nine percent all stop motion, but it's all so good. Mm. Like there aren't any shots. There's only one shot, literally, in the film where it's not like 
top-notch animation and it's when the trees are going will you please make way for a very special guy and the replacement faces in the trees are a bit shit <laughs> that's the one <laughs> shot in this film everything else is fucking gold wow in my opinion i'm sure there are plenty of tree <laughs> enthusiasts out there who are uh, d- d- screaming into the uh, podcast Wasn't that listening scene to like, the fir- like that song, like the very first thing they filmed? Because didn't they film no. chronologically? No, they filmed no? Uh, what's uh, uh, what's this? Oh first? no, yeah, you're yeah. right. Yeah, it was what's, what's this? this first. Yeah. That's the thing that they had to sell to Disney. So Disney was like, "Oh right, if you're going to make the whole film like this, we'll we'll sign." You know, because if they went yeah. in with Looks this good. is Halloween, Disney would have been like, ah. "Looking at a still of the uh, that's it scene, I do I think it was probably just a destructive process with the steps because it looks like." real damage just done to styrofoam mm. okay so i think it was just a don't fuck it up shoot it once <laughs> uh, you can't reshoot yeah i was only asking so i can make my own nightmare before christmas i'm, I'm gonna start it <laughs> next week <laughs> i'll see you in There's 10 definitely... years time <laughs> yeah 10 <laughs> sorry joseph i remember having conversations with people in the past where they were Talking about the, you know the live action stop motion thing that people thought whenever the camera was moving that must be live action because how would you move a camera in animation and it is sort of an interesting point because in this film there's some incredible cinematography um, really so we were saying before um, the cinematographer is the same as James the Giant Peach um, and his name has escaped me but I will find it in the book and say it later on but there's there's a great deal of camera movement in here which again I, I suppose was scaled up was sort of pushed for this feature film um just and and almost every other shot has some kind of sweeping elegant camera move we're going into a room or we're going across christmas channel we're kind of traveling you know through snow it's it's really there's an elegance to that and a choreography to that which i think made this film so iconic in terms of how cinematic it is and it's is sort of still, I think, I mean, I, even the short I'm making at the moment, I was working with an animator, um, Jody, who uh, has, he's, he's been on all sorts of Fantastic Mr. Fox and all sorts of films, uh, Jody Meredith. And, and we, we were watching clips in Nightmare Before Christmas going like, this is the ultimate sort of stop motion uh, example where it's not too polished. It's not super rough. The character performance is there. It's just got this great balance where, I think for, for me, a lot of the stuff now is too polished. It looks too much like computer animation. It's over-processed. Or like Ben's saying, you know, there's a lot of post-production kind of added on top. And Nightmare just has that brilliant balance of this staccato stop motion, which makes the medium so brilliant, so full of life. Um, but it's also just super expressive. The characters draw you in. There's so much, you know, motion and delicacy and choreography there. So I think for me, this is still one of the, the sort of perfect balances in terms of stop motion from a performance point of view. Do you think yeah, the, the mid nineties where you hit a sweet spot where you had the original Wallace and Gromits and you had the te- you know the technique and technology kind of uh, found a, a space where you could make James and the Giant Peach, you could make uh, yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas, you could make um, you know the Wallace Gromit films. Ardman were going full full tilt um, before computers came along and ruined everything. One for the purists. yeah. I think there's there's a sort of tendency to sort of push towards perfection these days for some reason, or, or almost imitating CGI, which for me is not really what stop motion is about. Um, mm. 
And so somehow this film just really has this brilliant balance. This is one of these particularly nice pieces of music. Um, yeah. Just because you forget like, how many long stretches without dialogue there are in the film. And this really kind of... It's hard, I think, to keep kids' attention. Um, but the music kind of goes a long way with that. Mm-hmm. I have a very odd specific memory of being in really like bad turbulence. Like one of those, you ever like on a plane and the and it gets so bad, like you go, uh oh, this actually might be a thing. Yeah. Like and, there are, and you can tell people are like freaking out and like you know having panic attacks and stuff. Oh, that's helping. And I remember like having to get to like praying. a really like calm space to kind of like keep myself from freaking out, and I just put on the soundtrack on my disc man, um, and remember listening to that particular piece of music waiting for the plane to hopefully not crash or whatever it was. And eventually we, we landed. It was all right. That was a, yeah. I remember when we, we, yeah, I remember when, uh, uh, when we first started working together, Ben on, on squiggly and, uh, you lent me the nightmare before Christmas soundtrack, but it was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't all the English sound. Uh, there was, uh, Italian and German and, uh, all these different kind oh, yeah, of yeah, variations. Yeah. They were absolutely... The foreign language soundtracks are great. They were fantastic. They're like, you said, listen, you must listen to Sally's song in Italian because it sounds extra beautiful. You must listen to This Is Halloween in German because it's so much more forceful. Yeah. In, in German, it's... it's a, Yeah, I guess you could do that with any Disney film. They have, like, different releases for different markets. But for this film, it just kind of made sense. But I actually I I used to, to play the Italian version of uh, Sally's song at concerts, um, and no one knew what it was. They just thought it was this, like, lacrimose Italian ballad uh, from some old, like, you know, 50s or 60s cruder. And I'm like, ah, oh, I could tell you what it is, but uh, it might take away the mystery. The music is absolutely fantastic. I mean, I think... I know Corpse Bride probably is is the closest thing in terms of stop motion with these, you know, sort of scored Danny Elfman songs. But there's something about Nightmare where every song is just sort of phenomenal. And and and, and in terms of the process, they, they started with the songs because there was a, a load of delays with the script and different writers being kind of brought in to work in the script. So it's almost like the film is built around the music. It's built around the songs. And Danny Elfman had a sort of decent amount of time to really develop the music and, and have those as, as the sort of punctuation, you know, of the, of the film and it built up around them. And that there's it just, yeah, everyone is iconic. It's, it's like you're saying, Ben, I can, I can see why, these gigs now are so popular because they are they are super iconic and, and I do I do love Danny Elfman's work but there's there's not quite you know a soundtrack that, that sort of beats the level of creativity for this although interesting I remember reading an interview with Henry Selick where he said he felt there was too much music in The Nightmare Before Christmas too many songs uh, you know, because you you have the sort of sung songs, and then you have the incidental music in between, and he felt like there wasn't enough room for the viewer to breathe in amongst all of the the music, which is interesting. He's wrong. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> enormously wrong, really. I mean, the whole there's so much that's kind of chaotically done wrong about this film, 
and somehow it, it all comes together and works perfectly. But just the, the agony of how it was written um, and around the songs and that there's sort of, you know, a story that makes sense at all is sort of remarkable when you know about the kind of story behind the film and how they really were kind of winging it. Um, but for this song we're in now, so it's him, uh, you know, having the crisis about what is he going to do with this new knowledge of Christmas. Um, and it's a musical number that's following a very long musical montage of him doing the exact same thing. We've kind of had two songs basically in a row about him, you know, pondering the meaning of Christmas. It's a big chunk of the film. Um, but the first song, like I said, doesn't have any dialogue or lyrics. So mm. we're already, we're, there's something about the magic of the music that it brings you in to the action. It doesn't make you, your mind doesn't wander. You're just sort of like compelled to, you know, find out whatever it is he's trying to find out with him. Um, and when you do think about it, and I, you know, the dialogue is almost incidental. Uh, and last, no, a couple of years ago, we had uh, Caroline Thompson on the podcast, who was the screenwriter. And it was very interesting talking to her. And she's a big part of this Netflix documentary as well. Um, I think the role of the script in the film and what it was to her and what it was to the other people, there was a lot of, there were people who were at loggerheads quite a lot. Um, but definitely it was song, it was a song led piece from the get go. And I think if it wasn't for those songs, it would have been impossible to put any kind of script together. Hmm. And so when you listen to the di the dialogue itself, is it's not like it's a particularly funny film. Like there aren't like gags in it or like really sharp, witty asides. It's just very charming. It's magical. It's it's you know it's enchanting. It's a fairy tale, hmm. um, but it's not like trying to be contemporary with its wit in the way that films around this sort of time like Aladdin and The Lion King and, you know, general sort of 90s Disney films, they try to throw in a lot of one-liners for the grown-ups and, you know, often succeeded, but that's not remotely on this film's agenda. It doesn't care about, like, you know, making the babysitter or the reluctant older sibling chuckle along with whoever's watching it. It's um, true to itself. Yeah. Yeah. It works on its own terms. This is quite late to be introduced to a villain as well in a film. I find this kind of uh, mm. uh, yeah these these three and then um, this song's great as well. Ah, all the songs are great. Thir Thirty three minutes in, yeah, it's interesting actually. So the, the the sense of threat, I suppose at the beginning, it's about him sort of trying to figure out what the meaning of the different worlds are and what he's going to do with this. And then, yeah, half an hour in, we're introduced to the villain. That, I'd not thought about well, that Well, actually, I remember as a kid watching, and, and this is one of those films, um, I was been about nine when it came out, uh, if it came out in 1993. And um, it's one of those films I used to watch, and I watch now as an adult, and I'm like, wow, that, that hour and a half went by really fast. But watching it as a kid, I'd soak up every second of screen time and just it felt like it lasted forever. So like by the time you get to what's this in this film, I figured that was halfway through the movie. <laughs> and, 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 you know, watching, watching back, but it's, it's not, it's 13 minutes in, it's 10 minutes in. It's, it's, it's fantastic that you get all this, so much more um, to the film. 
But again, that um, the instance of of Jack, I think one of the reasons I really particularly like this film is that it's it's almost a mirror image of your typical Burton-esque kind of character. Mostly you get some kind of stripy, what you might call gothy um, kind of loner uh, who longs to take themselves away from a kind of a bright and cheerful, sparkly suburbia, uh, which they see as bland. Whereas here you kind of have Jack who longs to embrace that. He wants to get away from the kind of spooky kind of world and 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 he's enchanted by uh joy i suppose yeah and it's a great you know it's it's great to see him embrace the opposite journey you know he's got what they all want in the film but he wants the opposite he wants less i suppose this uh this trio uh, uh so wonderful um, and again, like you say, that their concept is a little odd because they really facilitate the peril of the last act pretty much directly. Um, you know, they kind of uh, uh, they they shirk the actual responsibilities they have, and instead, you know, completely screw Santa Claus over. Um, and then they just kind of get off, get away with it. <laughs> like and then you say ah they're just sort of lovable really mm. like there's no kind of like punishment or retribution for them <laughs> and that kind of works with the logic of the film I guess like uh, it's a bit like a sort of Adam's family quality of like um, you know you can do something kind of screwed up but say ah you know that's just us what we like <laughs> you see the um, Danny Elfman uh, cameo there if anyone's watching you see the band the little man inside the base is uh, modelled off Danny Elfman. Yeah, I love that. It's funny as well with Lock, Stock and Barrel that they have masks of the face. The face underneath yeah. <laughs> is basically just a mask kind of copying the ghoulish expression underneath. But the character designs are really interesting. And you, you sort of... There, there's also a great making of if there's this documentary on Netflix we were talking about, there's also a great making of that came with the original DVD. It wasn't, it wasn't ever on the VHS, but there's, yeah, on the DVD, I think I'm sure it's on YouTube now, but making of Night Before Christmas, which is, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes or half an hour. And that, that sort of really, yeah, it's, it's quite a, a nice in-depth look at the production. And you sort of learn through that, how they developed the look of the film. And it's a real mix of things because obviously Henry Selick has a style in in himself and he's production designed things um in the past as well but it was really tim burton's drawings that and then rick heinrichs was kind of working into the aesthetic as well uh but the characters yeah designs are sort of being drawn from tim burton's line drawings and then sort of pushed and sculpted into three dimensions and then eventually sort of yeah created into these puppets which are I, I, to be honest, I don't think there's much fabric in there. Laura Beth, you might be able to feed in on this as well, but it looks to me like it's all sort of foam latex and and silicon. There is like more than there is a little bit now and again, but it tends to be more for hair. Mm. And maybe in the real world, like the real world within the 
the sort of costumes, yeah. Mm. I like this character that never appears again. Yeah. like if he's got this guy why is he keeping sally as a slave like he's already got a (laughs) surf it took me a long time to realize that like because the last bit of the film where where he builds a new woman is so like peripheral that sally was obviously meant to be his wife but i always thought she was meant to be like a daughter yeah i think there's a dark element there Mm. that you could (laughs) read into well, he made himself a sex doll. Let's let's <laughs> call a spade a spade. Yep. And she's just not into it, and he's in a wheelchair, so he can't get at her. One of the other sort of things that, um, again, I don't think was a revelation to most people, but it was mentioned in the documentary. I think Carolyn may have mentioned it in our interview, but there was a proposed ending where the reveal... Um, behind Oogie Boogie's, um, you know, uh, cloth exterior, that it was going to be Dr. Finkelstein all along. And it was part of a, um, I guess, overall plan to, I don't know, get rid of Jack. And I'm glad that wasn't the I case. I suppose because she was in love with Jack. Yeah. So that was way more, I think they sort of hammered that idea home more, that he actually had a thing for this I woman. I like him just creating. being kind of like, weirdly creepy in the background and kind of useful but mostly creepy like most scientists yeah he seemed like he just was was a kind like i say sort of a kind of annoyed dad sort of thing like he he just wanted to be respected he wanted kind his of daughter thing. to stay home and look after him is how i always read it yeah, yeah. it was like yeah. an overbearing <laughs> like why aren't you more intelligent and why aren't you my assistant why do you want to leave the yeah. house all the time there's plenty to do here does anyone know who who does does his voice? Because his the voice actor is fantastic, but there's so much like Tim Burton alum William in this Hickey. film that you recognise, but I I never recognised his voice. William Hickey. And does that name mean anything to you? Uh no. No. <laughs> no. Which is your this was another shot actually with the Russian dolls that felt kind of weirdly live action because with the camera pulled yeah, back. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's, it it just gives the movement a, a very odd quality. Mm. I think it's I think it's what you were saying before, Ben. It looks like there's sort of yeah motion blur or something on that. Mm. And this is one of the scenes that I guess would have confused Steve uh, <laughs> after last week's episode. Um, Oh yeah, the Santa yeah, workshop scene. <laughs> Why are they making the toys? Surely, surely Argos make the toys. <laughs> yeah, and then Hasbro's workshop. Yeah, yeah. Hasbro. Well, just all Argos or Index, mate. Ah, <laughs> uh, Index. That takes me back. Who would have been the character you'd have liked to have animated? Oh. Oogie Boogie, probably. Yeah. Probably not if I knew how it would have been. Yeah, probably not. The weight distribution on that puppet. I feel like it'd be like wrangling a horse. But in terms of being satisfied with the results. Because it's just the puppet itself is huge. None of them look easy. (laughs) None of them. No, it's very very true. I do a cracking job with the ghosts. (laughs) The the flat TD ghosts. I like that guy with the (laughs) tentacle hair because he just has so much going on. And I think his mouth would be really fun to animate because he's just a stork. Hmm. In the middle, and he's got like wire all the way around his mouth, no. and so he yeah. and he just like I don't 
the mechanics of trying to figure out how to do his lip sync would have been really weird because his he either has down or up. Yeah. But you have to cut his mouth can be in any position around the entire three sixty of his head. Mm. And that's quite <laughs> a bizarre and also what even is he? Like no. he's not a thing. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of these characters. Is, he, is, is that the Harlequin? Is that his name? The Harlequin character? No, uh, maybe. the Harlequin the one with the teeth the clown, right the way it? around. The teeth in a big circle and then the jaw. Yeah, is that the Harlequin? Yeah, okay. I think that's a Harlequin, yeah. Oh, that so, would make yeah. sense with the hat, which is tentacles. I feel like probably Jack would be quite hard to animate because there's really nowhere to hide. He's so graphic. You know, these spindly limbs, everything reads on screen. So whatever you're doing, it's kind I of like, like, yeah, there's there's nowhere to hide with the movement. I feel as like as long as the armature is nice and solid, he'd be quite nice because like the bits where he goes really spider-like, you can just push down on his entire mm. body to get that movement. So he's quite nice. As long as you hold onto his feet and presumably they'd have all been tied down, you can get quite a nice amount of movement. My problem would be like, the hands of his just i i just imagine they like each one of the little bits of his finger just break every single time because it's just it's just <laughs> wire with like the tiniest amount of material over it yeah like i just imagine you'd be mid making and it would just break instantly yeah I made for christmas i mean this probably would have been early 90s i made my parents a, a jack skellington sort of model um I guess, I, I don't know, I, maybe I, I don't know whether I had it in the books and I had the VHS and I'd sort of, yeah, made a model of it using probably steel wire, some sort of horrendous wire, which is not meant for animation at all, mm-hmm. covered in black plasticine <laughs> um, and made, yeah, made made the puppet of him and then he was stood underneath the Christmas town sign. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think still now there's a quality to the movement and the character design, which has inspired the way that I sort of, you know, create puppets or certainly think visually in stop motion anyway. Because there's not that, there's not been that many films that really have this kind of, like such a bold aesthetic, Mm. such a kind of stretched, you know, German expressionist kind of visual language. It really is, it just has a language of its own. It's, It's quite, I think there's a tendency sometimes to stop motion to get on this doll's house route where everything's quite polished and neat and actually with this, it's really just off the wall. And with the textures as well, it's not super polished. It has an amazing kind of look to it. Well, Tim Burton and films like this are completely to blame for every student always wanting to come through and make like insanely lanky, tiny-footed puppets that are just impossible yeah. on a student budget. Like, you can't make yeah. joints that small. It's not possible. Like, unless you've been... It's very hard to do this well. You know, Unless you've this, been this doing kind it for of, a long time and maybe that's yeah. that's all you do for like however long this film took to make is just make ten tiny feet joints. And it you know, yeah. similarly with Corpse Bride, a lot of the armatures are just there's nothing on top, it's just a painted armature. Yeah. Um with maybe a little bit of like something hard wearing that can make the joints seem like they're going into like an elbow. But really it's just pure metal. Mm. And, just the- and I suppose because it's yeah, it's such a seminal film. It's been it's really yeah, like you say, it, it, like it has a lot to answer for in terms of um, crude, dark inverted commas student films. <laughs> I love this black light. I think it's fantastic. The colours having are, been uh, um, like so bowled over by that uh, that opening musical number, 
and feeling like it would be a hard thing to top. I remember this moment in the film, like the first time I saw it being like, okay, this, this is, this is doing a pretty good job. You're like, well done, random man. I don't know. Well, it was, it was such a, this is a very odd song. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's, it's musically not like a lot of the rest of the music. It draws on very different sort of eras of music and the sort of tropes of, you know, what the piano's doing, the kind of percussive yeah. elements of you know, in the chorus, uh, that kind of like, like it, it was instrumentally just sort of fascinating to me. And also what the fuck is this guy? Like everyone else is a thing. This guy is <laughs> like, this is a, a like an actual nightmare at this point. And we haven't really just seen a him sack of except in like as a shadow. <laughs> he is the perfect sack drop exercise. Come yeah. to life. But also all now, this gambling, um, this gambling stuff as well. I mean, it, it would it be that Danny Elfman just wrote, one. "I'm a gambling boogeyman," and then it's like, "Oh, so he's a gambling. He's, a, he's into gambling." Okay, so let's draw slot machines. Let's make it like Vegas in there. Let's you know, doesn't matter that he's a bag of insects. <laughs> he's now, he's now a. a a bag of insects with a gambling loves addiction. Loves the slots. Yeah, yeah, loves the slots. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it is like New Orleans kind of blues, isn't it, Ben? That's like musically, you just it, and, it, and like you say, it's so different to the rest of the soundtrack, which has this kind of melancholy sort of, yeah, maybe Eastern European sounding kind of strangeness with the accordion and everything else. And then this this villain, I suppose he's he's so sort of, yeah, encapsulated as a character by the like, yeah, like you were saying, Steve, the black light, this kind of neon uh, visual language, but also the music. He becomes suddenly this like very other. And I remember finding it quite odd as a kid. Like I didn't quite get it. I, I didn't quite like those sequences, or I was scared by them. Even though the rest of the film, you know, I'm like happy with the kid zombies and everything else. Like something about Oogie Boogie was quite strange and other. Well, in by the, this point, in the film. we're comforted in this Halloween world. We've li- we'd lived yeah. through it. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's orange, so it's grey, so it's black, so it's it's mud- yeah. muddy. Get it? It's it's fine. It's not going to bite me. It's not scary. And then we go to yeah, Oogie it had Boogie. been demystified. Yes, and like yeah. the yeah. monsters are actually nice. Yeah, and then yeah. he says, "Actually, one of them isn't. Yeah, one of them's gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> this one's got guns. Don't worry." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a big pit of lava. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and a gambling addiction. And there's the thing: like when they are in peril, they're not going to die slowly. Like the death mechanisms are like properly intense, like <laughs> like saw, you know, uh, the big knives coming at you. Um, well, yeah, it was a, a heartbreaking element of the film, and I remember again that that song was like, oh my god, someone else has to see this, and I remember like running to get my sister to come, and I rewound it. It's like you have to watch like this. I'm just so like fascinated by. It. I didn't phrase it like that, but it's like watch this. <laughs> and um, I could tell she really wanted to like it, but uh, <laughs> two of her frenemies had been to see this film in the cinema in England. Uh, a couple, it came out in the cinema in England around the time it came out on video in Canada. And so I'm watching it on video, and she had just heard from her, her frenemies that uh, they had seen this film, and it was really stupid. And this being the law of being a young pre-adolescent girl is you had to think and do as your frenemies did. And for decades, she refused to like this film. 
And I just feel so sad that she denied herself of the enjoyment of this film based on that. I was not that kind of girl. It would have no. made me like it more. Well, you helped the, f- that- the fan club, Laura. Yeah, you? I did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if that would come up. Yeah, don't worry. I'm, I'm here to bring that up. Tell everybody about your fan club, Laura. Well, what website like do they have to go on? Like what, an MySpace em- has forgotten. We remember. Oh, it wasn't even MySpace. It, it was Bebo. Bebo. <laughs> of course. Oh, I miss those days. A simpler time. There's some nice cinematography here as well with this fog that Sally releases to try and stop Jack going off on his Christmas mission. And um, a lot of this is done practically as well, where I think they've got these sort of soft focus uh, filters in front of the lens where when light is hitting an object, you get this kind of diffraction, diffusion around the edges of, uh, you know, these walls and things and... And, and then with the fog on top of that, you just get this really sort of blurry quality. Pete uh, Kazachik, that's the cinematographer's mm. name. I've just looked it up in my little book of book of credits. So he, uh, yeah, he's the one who did James, James and Giant Peach as well. And I think there's, I don't know, yeah, the lighting in this is just fantastic. And it really, I think, you know, you, you, you sort of have to have a brilliant cinematographer to bring out all the textures and all the sort of angles that we were talking about earlier and just make all of that sing, the production design. I just think there's everything on this film is done well. You know, the music, the performance, the lighting, everything comes together to sort of mm. make this a very unique film that hasn't, you know, like we were saying before, hasn't really been sort of necessarily matched in the same way since. We've just sort of entered the real world, such as it is. And it's it's interesting how jarring the geometry of it feels. Mm. Things having... I mean, it's all... It's a you know bit um, cartoony still, but things still have angles in a way that makes sense yeah, compared to Halloween degrees. Town. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of a... Jarring thing. Yeah. I find it weird how insanely clean and tidy the houses are. It's almost it's like like everything's very... a forced perspective, isn't it? It's like chimneys not being built. That's like a yeah. yeah, yeah. It's all sort of. I think the sets were literally like like in theatre. You would have a raked stage. Yeah. Ah. Everything's at a, at a sort of an angle. So you're sort of looking, and and that very was I think cool. based on Tim Burton's drawings. He would do these very graphic sort of angled. Um, drawings, and they really built the sets to kind of match that look. So rather than shooting. <laughs> Uh, a sort of yeah doll's house set they're actually yeah false false perspective sort of built into the um into the set everything these kids they did are similar getting... thing on Coraline actually mm. some of the scenes everything these kids are getting for Christmas just looks like my Christmas list now <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed yeah, it, I've like... noticed it again watching you don't never see the adults faces Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. Like in the old Tom and Jerry cartoons, yeah, or something. Yeah, peanuts or something. Yeah, it's because it's the same. Yeah, yeah. it's the same puppets, just put in different dressing gowns. Fair enough. So a lot of these shots on VHS, I was sure were like rudimentary CG. There's something about the the lighting of them. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, feels it's super. The cool. way the kids here, the way they're backlit, I wish I would have put money on that being CG when I first saw it. Uh, we're watching, I think. Um, well, I think we're all watching the DVD version because that's sort of the one we all knew would be synced up. Um, it's since, you know, of course, been released in, in better quality. So you can tell. But it is interesting, like, 
just how I <laughs> left the screen. <laughs> 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 But I'm still confused by the wreath. Right. Because I used to think that was CG, but now I'm confused as to how that was made. What as do you a, mean? The, well, when Toy Story is what, 94, 96? Nice. I think it was 96. So this was a couple of years before. Yeah. So it's it's a few, yeah, a fair few years before that. I, I, I think I'm pretty sure there's, yeah, there's not, there was compositing going on with the 2D and the stop motion, but I'm, I'm fairly certain there wasn't any sort of, yeah, CG. I mean, you were seeing it in films, but like, it was always a bit, like, it was one of those things like, oh, it looks new, but it didn't look good mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, I think, until Jurassic Park that it looked good uh, when yeah. they used it. But before it was like Terminator 2 and like the lawnmower man, yeah. it was very, yeah. Well, Tron was way before, the, but... The, the Abyss. Things with kind of gloopy CGI, yeah. watery mass. I'm so lo- what is I'm it looking... about the roof that confuses you? I guess just sort of the way the eyes bulge out of it and like the, the way, way it kind of... Like the way that they sort of come out, out of it. It sort of pulses as They'd it comes to life. Replacements. You think? Okay. I'm looking at this, uh, at the credits. There doesn't appear to be a lot of... Uh, of CG, everything where it kind of looks at digital artists, uh, it's all from the 2006 re-release. So ILM got on board in 2000 and for the 2006 3D re-release. Uh, they doesn't, they don't appear to be, or there doesn't appear to be much in the way of um, any kind of uh, contemporary CG, CG that was done at the time. Um, no, I certainly don't think any of the character stuff is. Mm. Um, it's like it's just sort of occasional little digital overlays and stuff. Um, now, another thing that, again, I, I I forget if she brought it up in in our interview, but she's brought it up outside of the recent documentary. Is she had the screenwriter Carolyn Thompson really had issues with Oogie Boogie the character, mm. and she was really stuck on the idea that it was drawing upon problematic um, imagery and that the shape of the hood was a bit like a Klansman. And the thing that she really kind of stuck her heels on was that the name Oogie Boogie was a, a quite bad racial epithet. Now, and I'm not an etymologist by any stretch of the imagination, I think that's just wrong. You know, I, I just genuinely don't think that's correct, unless anyone knows better than me. But the idea is, like, it's he's the boogeyman, right? Yeah. And Oogie Boogie is music, so that's just the, the um, you know, the portmanteau or whatever. Um, but it was a strange thing, because that was one of the things that really created a rift. And it sort of was an indi- indication that maybe some of the rifts were predicated on stuff that wasn't really there. Hang on, it's, you know? obviously you've got Oogie, it's like o- o- Boogie being the you've got the Boogeyman who's yeah. uh, a traditional you could even call it folklore like it's a it's a the thing that lives under your bed, all that sort of stuff, scary scary. Oogie what what's I mean, like, well, Oogie Boogie is music. It's 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 not quite the type of music he's singing, but it's like it's an old timey sort of you know ragtime, I think. Type do the of, Oogie Boogie, yeah. but like 
Uga Booga um, is kind of like um, you'd do that for like a caveman or a gorilla, wouldn't you? If you're doing like a kind of a, a terrible impression of them, is that where that comes? Is that sort of is is that where that might have been misconstrued or screwed? Is that what? Well, I I think maybe it just phonetically sounds problematic now. And and sometimes people, you know, there are certain words that sound like bad words, but they're actually not. This is a quote um, from another podcast she was interviewed on. The Oogie Boogie character looks like a Klansman, she said. Oogie Boogie is a derogatory term for African Americans in the American South. I begged the powers that be to change something about that character because of that. I said, this is so ugly and dangerous and antithetical to everything inside me. I did not win that fight it was a troubling part of the film for me to be frank now, now i could see why that would be upsetting but like i say and i'm 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 i've tried to look this up and i haven't found anything on the etymology of that term mm. so i i just think that you know this is bad because you don't want to be the guy sort of being like oh you're being upset over nothing because that apparently is what what created such distress but I, I don't know. I just I, I don't think that's based on anything I can find. But if anyone out there knows, I'm I'm interested. It's in, it's um, an interesting it's an interesting one, definitely. Um, I don't think it's remotely anyone's intent yes, to kind yes. of stir that yeah. hornet's nest. I don't think anyone. What would be the function of putting that in a film like this? Um, it doesn't make any sense, you know. And this isn't a. It's not like a film that like wears. Um, you know, uh, equality on its sleeve in a way that, you know, um, <laughs> Dot and Santa Claus did so painfully the other week. Um, but it's a film about being happy with who you are. I mean, this is what this scene is about, really. It's him being, you know what, I tried it. You know, I, I wore this as a hat. It wasn't for me. Yeah. But you know what, I'm, 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 I'm fucking good at what I do. Um, but there's no harm in trying something new every once in a while. Like, there's a positive thing at its core you know look at all the secondary action on that on those sleeves and things all those all those oh, no, it is amazing i think if Anthony anyone Scott hasn't listened to the scene or something he did yeah, yeah who yeah. did sorry did anthony scott who oh. um what don james and uh, recently the little prince ah cool but he was chatting yeah, with us about really working on this scene prolific american animator really um um, yeah, done some amazing, amazing work over the years. And yeah, like um, like Ben was saying, worked on The Little Prince, works quite closely now with Jamie Kaleri, who um, directed the stop-motion sequences for The Little Prince and created Dragon Frame. And he's done some amazing work in yeah, stop-motion films over the years. I think I think that was the first scene he did on Nightmare, actually, that um, Jack in the, in the graveyard wow. there. But... If anyone hasn't yeah, listened to the interview with Ben Dib and Caroline Thompson, it is super interesting. She was very sort of candid and revealing about these processes of the mm. films with Tim Burton at the time. It's a really interesting sort of insight into how these films are made and the sort of tribulations and development that they go through. I did really like her, I have to say. It was a great chat. And she's, I mean, she wrote, you know, Fairbairn Scissorhands and uh, The Addams Family is one of my favourite films from... Yeah. It was a real treat to talk to her. Um, and it, it, the main impression I got was that she just really stood her ground whenever she felt that she needed to. And, you know, the the 
egos of certain rungs of Hollywood don't take very kindly to that. And I think that there's a sort of learning to play the game that one needs to do to, I think, climb that ladder. And I don't think that interested her. I think she was way more interested in, like, standing up for what she believed in. Um, and that, you know, that that meant that she probably has less IMDb credits than she would have, but better that than be miserable in your work, you know? Yeah. Actually, I remember trying to steer the, because we had talked about three movies in a row that had gone bad, and one of them, I think, was The Corpse Bride, and she had a very bad experience with that, and... Uh, I, she had just written a film that had just come out called uh, Welcome to Marwen. And I remember trying to be like, so this is another film that's coming out. And th- that was like the worst one of all. So I don't think I even kept that in the, <laughs> the episode. Because that like she had like a huge falling out with the, the director or the producer or something like that. And I was like, okay, well, let's try and end on a positive. Very odd film, that one, Welcome to Marwen. It's animated. Partially. Oh, is that the Steve Carell? Is he, he has a nervous breakdown and then mm-hmm. um, yeah, the lives through dolls and, and stuff. Yeah. So Disney have been absolutely screaming out for a sequel for this one. Please, God, no. Well, I I read there's been rumours for the past sort of five years that the Nightmare Before Christmas is going to have a live action remake. <laughs> Uh, in in the vein of The Lion King Ugh. and Jungle Book and everything else, which I just, I mean, uh, not that I'm a fan of them remaking the kind of classic drawn animated films, but I, I just can't see how, you, A, how you could do it and B, the point of doing a remake of The Nightmare Before Christmas because you're not going to get anywhere near the, the sort of bold visual language that's on screen. There's there's just, you know, it's it's always going to fall flat doing this in live action. I mean, I just don't know how you would do it unless you went down a weird Tim Burton sort of, um, what was it, Alice in Wonderland, bulging eyes yeah, and CG-affected character yeah. way of sort of putting it together. Nobody wants that. Who wants that? No, you want that, no. you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that there are certain people who get these gigs to remake films and... and they think that they're contemporizing them and bringing them into the modern era for a new generation and doing good. And I think they fundamentally don't understand why the films exist the way they, or why they were originally conceived the way they were, or what it was about them that the audience is engaged with. And I think, you know, the big one that people have been talking about ad finitum is um, uh, The Lion King, of course, and how in its making it technically better quote-unquote it's removed a huge amount of what made it succeed as a film and i never saw it but i remember you steve described for example the villain's song be prepared and how that just is a completely empty moment in the live action quote-unquote film Mm. um it, it just and i saw clips of hakuna matata like there was a i think a viral clip that played them side by side and you see okay well this is one is a fun animated feature film, and the other is like just a bunch of sort of realistic animals walking around with no buttholes. Yeah, it feels joyless. Yeah. Um, it was uh, just can't wait to make a film out of that game I've been playing. I just cl- like screen captured Planet Zoo and just tried <laughs> to make it into a, like a zoo simulator. <laughs> this will do. There was, um, I think. 
nearer the time that there was there sort was of I think it's the head here's Tim Burton's head it's a pumpkin uh, yeah so that was okay so yeah it must have been reshot rather oh, than cut but I think that's on the DVD extras as well the the, uh, the original Savage Tim Burton head version um, yeah I think around the time there was talks about doing a sequel to Nightmare Before Christmas because of its uh it, it, although it was it, again it was only sort of popular sort of later on at the time it came out i don't know if it was deemed a sort of huge box office success it did pretty well but there was sort of you know talk about a sequel um and tim burton obviously made you know two batman films but i think in the end the only sequel that really sort of happened was that there was a computer game called oogie boogie's revenge and that sort of uh, had a had a, a, a follow up narrative, but I it's not something you can tell that they I... stayed up all night working that one out. Mm-hmm. Like the, <laughs> it's like the return of Jafar. Like let's just go home early, yeah. guys. <laughs> the thing is, it's not a film about Jack fighting Oogie Boogie, is it? It's a film about Jack going nuts and trying to create his own Christmas and ruining the world, and then yeah. it just so happens he at the end he's like, look. um you need to rescue Santa Claus and, and it's the last minute. It's not like, ah, finally we meet at last. It's like, you've just been roped in to do this. You know, he's, you know, that's how I always yeah. felt that kind of sort of. It's about his sort of personal dilemma of, of in you know, dissatisfaction with his life, really. Yeah. And, and sort of trying to find something he's new. He's his own worst enemy. But then at the end, he has to rescue his friends. That's, that's where we are with it. I do remember the first time seeing this film and... I went to see it with my uh, my auntie Frances, uh, who absolutely hated the film. <laughs> I, I took, Hi, auntie Frances, if you're listening in. Oh no, she's she's uh, <laughs> she's not a fan. And she said the only I, I, I asked her what, what was your favourite bit. I didn't like any of it. She said, um, and she's like, I didn't like any of it. I went, God, you must have liked one bit. And she's like, Well, maybe one bit. And it was the bit where Santa Claus squishes the bug at the end. That was a, fav- <laughs> a favourite bit. To be fair, that's a quite a good bit of animation. <laughs> Loads of uh, good names uh, popping up on screen now. We're at the credits. We've got uh, uh, Joe Ramtheo turned up, um, who also passed the idea to Tim Burton from this film to do Corpse Ride. Um, we'll have, uh, who we spoke very fondly about in the last podcast, uh, Joseph Paul Berry. Popping yeah, up there as well. There's a few, yeah. Paul Barry, brilliant animator. Timothy Hittle, I think you guys have done a thing on as well. Who went? Who made a lot of great short films too. Um, there's there's a few people who kind of yeah were involved in this film who then I suppose became the sort of uh, initial core of stop motion feature film animators that have then gone on to do uh, you know like Trey Thomas do a lot of stuff at at Leica and uh, and now on Pinocchio and the other Netflix films that are going on so this was really the beginning I suppose of that merry band of traveling stop motion crew who go from feature film to feature film in different countries you know uh, bringing characters to life can you imagine so having Nightmare Before Christmas on your CV you'd just be like oh you've got the job then <laughs> like I, I, I mean, think yeah, you're, you're fine sorted. you'd be those eight people and be like oh never mind of course this way <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I remember going to a um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say so I'll say a well known northwest stop motion animation place um, fill it in yourself um, and they were restoring the puppets for the Nightmare Before Christmas when we did a little tour mm. oh, and wow. I went into the room and, 
And there's Jack Skellington just stood there, just looking. Although here they come the police, they know who I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you so, violated the NDA, Steve. <laughs> Get in the back. Um, I didn't say who it was. I didn't say it was McKinnon and Saunders. Whoops. Um, so um, you can edit that bit out. Oh no, it's live in mind. Um, so we, and, it, and, it, and I got starstruck. I was I was like, oh my god, it's it's it was like seeing the Mona Lisa or El, Elvis Jackson. Presley or something like that in the room. It was incredible. But yeah, just on a shelf. Did you tried to grab it. Uh, I did, but then four people died. And then on they me slapped and, your hand away. Yeah. No, Steve, down. <laughs> Started spraying water at me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what was that for? Because I was it was some kind of exhibition or I don't know. No, I've not ever seen the Night Before Christmas puppets. In I was saying to Laura Beth earlier, I did go to the Tim Burton, the World of Tim Burton exhibition, the uh, Museum of Modern Art one that toured around. I saw it in Germany, but they it was mostly artwork and drawings and things. Um, I don't think there were there were puppets. It might be for a personal collection. Yeah, they, they, they might they be, also be do restoring it for. Been. Yeah. Burton himself. Because well, a lot of the being... puppets from this film do not exist yeah, because of the materials they use. Gone. They do just turn back mm. into jelly. I, I do remember seeing like a, th- a thing that was being worked on that seemed like it was a restoration, was actually a reproduction. Mm. Yeah, like they might yeah. have the mould still, so they're just recasting and repainting everything. Well, well, a lot of the... So it's maybe the original armature or something. But Jack probably would have survived pretty well I'd have imagined well, actually, like, there like are I said there's in, not much material on him but there are bits actually part of the Paul Berry collection that are in Manchester Museum so actually held oh. by Manchester Museum so the witches oh, right. uh, in the film um, the skeleton uh, the, the, the worm from um, Fantastic James. Uh, from James and the Giant Peach is all in there as well we're coming to the end. Sorry, I forgot oh, wow. to. I forgot to. Uh, we'll keep an eye on the on the end here. Thank you very much, Joseph. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on this pleasure final Squiggly Film Club Christmassy podcast special. Um, I think we could easily watch this film three times in a row and keep talking. Yeah, you know. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Ah, well. yeah, let's just do it again next year. See you then, folks. <laughs> It'll be our annual tradition. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry guys. Bye bye. Merry Christmas. Ha, ha, ha.